you have a Bible, would you open it to Revelation chapter 3? If you do not have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. We'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Coming now to the fifth letter from the risen Son of Man to the churches of Asia Minor. Thus saith the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In 2014, Dr. Tom Rayner, the president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources and an expert in the field of church health, he wrote a book entitled Autopsy of a Deceased Church, in which he assumed the role of a medical examiner, poring over the corpses, as it were, of deceased churches, searching for the cause of death, and drawing upon years of experience in consulting with local churches, Rayner in that book identified several contributing factors which inevitably lead to the decline and eventual death of once thriving congregations. Rayner writes of one particular case that he worked in 2003. The church in question had a peak attendance of 750 in the year 1975. But by the time Rayner was called in, 28 years later, the congregation had dwindled to an average attendance of 83. A sparse crowd literally engulfed in the enormous sanctuary that once held the thriving church. Though most of the church members did not want Rayner there and did not appreciate him telling them what was wrong with their church. Nevertheless, due to the generosity of one particular member who offered to pay the entire consulting fee himself, Rayner worked with the church for three years, or for three weeks, rather. As Rayner reports, the problems were obvious, the solutions were difficult. When the three weeks were up, the one friendly church member inquired of Rainer, what do you think? How long can our church survive? Rainer says that he paused a moment before getting into his car and then broke the bad news. I believe that your church will close its doors in five years. 
But Rayner admits he was wrong. He wrote in 2013 that like many dying churches, it held on to life tenaciously. This church lasted 10 years after my terminal diagnosis. 10 grueling, depressing years. When performing the autopsy of this particular church, Rayner found 11 contributing factors in its death. Factors which he says are to be found in most declining churches. So what I want to do is to read you a summary of his autopsy report for this particular church. And let's see if we can evaluate and find any similarities with our church, which might serve as warning signs for First Baptist Nixa. All right, so here's the autopsy report of this church which died two years ago. Number one, the church refused to look like the community. This particular church was located in an area, probably an urban area, which had begun to transition into a lower socioeconomic demographic, but the, the membership seemed to wholly ignore this fact. Thus, writes Rayner, the congregation became an island of middle-class members in a sea of lower-class residents. Which is a problem because a church that refuses to become incarnational in its community, that is, becoming like its community, becoming enfleshed in its community, will never reach its community. Number two, the church had no community-focused ministries, closely connected to the previous factor. Because the members no longer looked like their neighbors, they stopped attempting to reach their neighbors. They just drove in from wherever it was that they had moved, attended church services, and then when they were over, locked the door and left. Number three, members became more focused on memorials. You know what memorials are? We don't have any here. But if you walk into your average 100-year-old First Baptist church, you will see memorial plaques everywhere, on chairs, on tables, on pews, in rooms, everywhere. What has happened is when, when one member has passed away, their family has either paid for some renovation to that particular room or paid to have this pew refinished or whatever it is, and they put a memorial plaque on it. Throughout this autopsy report, you will see an underlying theme of focusing upon the past rather than focusing upon the future. Number four, the percentage of the budget for members' needs kept increasing. At the time of the church's death in 2013, over 98% of the budget stayed in the church and went toward ministering to its own members. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it was evident that this church's heart and budget had turned radically inward. Number five, there were no evangelistic emphases. 
Much like the church at Ephesus, this particular congregation had lost their first love and they had abandoned their first works. And if you remember from, or from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, that the church at Ephesus had lost their first love and abandoned their first works. And because of this, Jesus had threatened to come and remove their lampstand. And so we inferred that the first works and the first love that they had lost was the works and the love of light-bearing missions. So this church had lost their first love. They had abandoned their first works. And so Jesus had come and he had removed their lampstand. Rainer writes that when a church loses its passion to reach the lost, the congregation begins to die. Number six, the members had more and more arguments about what they wanted. In other words, the word of God had ceased to hold the position of highest authority in the church. It had abdicated that role and been replaced by the traditions and the opinions of men. So says Rainer, as the church continued to decline toward death, the inward focus of the members turned caustic. Arguments were more frequent. Business meetings became more acrimonious. Number seven, with few exceptions, pastoral tenure grew shorter and shorter. In the course of those last ten grueling, depressing years, the church went through seven pastors. Three of them were bivocational. In other words, the church either couldn't or wouldn't support them full time. And all seven of them left the church utterly discouraged in ministry. So the church were like sheep without a shepherd, just wandering aimlessly toward danger and destruction and death. Number eight, the church rarely prayed together. You'll find a trend through this autopsy report of a neglect of the means of grace. The means of grace of the word of God in prayer. It is no wonder that the church floundered in powerlessness when they fell into prayerlessness. Rayner reports that over the last eight years, the only time that the congregation ever prayed together was in this little three-minute segment sandwiched in the middle of the worship service, and that that time of corporate prayer was totally taken up with the health needs of the members and their family and friends. In other words, they, they spent all of their time praying for the physical and the temporal and no time praying for the eternal and the spiritual, which shows you where their heart was. You can always tell the heart of a church by listening to what they pray for. Number nine, the church had no clarity as to why it existed. A church that doesn't know its mission will never fulfill its mission. That's why we try to drill into the, to, to our own minds, all of our minds, that First Baptist Nixa exists to connect people to God, to each other, and to the world for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that we seek to accomplish this mission by valuing gospel-centered life, word-centered worship, Christ-centered fellowship, and God-centered mission. Number 10, the members idolized another era. Rayner writes that all of the active members were over the age of 67, the last six years of the church. Which means they weren't reaching anybody. And they all remembered fondly to the point of idolatry the era of the 1970s. They saw their future as a returning to their past. 
And number 10, or 11, number 11, the facilities continued to deteriorate. This wasn't due to a lack of finances, but rather to the fact that the church members no longer noticed the continual deterioration of their building and their grounds. As Rayner explains, they no longer had outsider eyes. Now, this last factor can go either way in dead and declining churches. Either they can totally ignore their facilities, or they can become so obsessed with their facilities that the building and the grounds become the obsession rather than the gospel. Either way, the facility-driven focus or lack of focus is a contributing factor in the church's death. A church's present existence is no guarantee of its future existence. In fact, even if a church presently exists, that is no guarantee that it is a true church. That is a living, vibrant, New Testament, Christ-centered, word-saturated, gospel-impassioned congregation. It may just be a building with people that gather and sing some songs and say some words and go out into their carnal, apathetic lives. Most deceased churches, like the one I just read about, flatlined long before anyone had the courage or the will to declare and pronounce it dead. Our text this morning introduces us to such a church. The fifth letter which Jesus sends to the churches of Asia Minor is addressed to the church in Sardis. So we read in verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The city of Sardis was situated on the northern outcrop of Mount Tamales, which is about 50 miles east of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. Its Acropolis sat on the spur of the mountain and was surrounded on three sides. You can see it there in the background. It was surrounded on three sides by smooth, eroded rock walls rising some 1,500 feet above the valley below. In other words, the city of Sardis was a natural fortress And it was thought in the ancient world to be impregnable to invading forces. But that evaluation proved wrong. In 546 BC, Cyrus the Great and his Persian army laid siege to the city of Sardis. And on the 14th day of the siege, a handful of Persian soldiers scaled their way up one of those smooth rock walls and accomplished what was up to that point thought to be impossible. They scaled the wall to a point where, according to Herodotus, the Greek historian, no guard was stationed because there was no fear that it would ever be captured at that place for the Acropolis is sheer and impregnable there. Well, having been infiltrated by a few of the Persian elite, it was not long before the entire city fell into Persian hands. In other words, though the city of Sardis had a reputation for being unassailable, invulnerable to attack. 
impregnable to enemy forces. It was, in fact, weak and vulnerable. And it failed to keep vigilant watch on the walls of the city. Now, I don't know if the city's history is in the back of Jesus' mind when he's writing this letter to the church at Sardis, but it does form an apt metaphor for what had occurred in the local church there. Thought that they were strong. Thought that they were alive. But they were dead. To the church at Sardis, Jesus introduces himself as him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God comes from Revelation 1-4. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the one spirit is spoken of in terms of seven conveys the idea, seven being the number of completion, perfection, fullness, it conveys the idea of the spirit's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent being. And the seven stars comes from Revelation 1, 16 and 20, where we find that they are the seven angels of the seven churches, and that they are held in the right hand of the Son of Man. The point of verse 1, the point of this introduction, is to remind this dead or dying church of the source of true life. This is a church, a congregation that had a reputation of being alive. And you don't get that sort of reputation unless you once, in fact, have been alive and vibrant. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. And as we will find out, they were dead because they had abandoned the author of life, and they had neglected his words of life, and because of this, they were devoid of the spirit of life. Jesus Jesus told the unbelieving Jewish multitudes in John chapter 6, John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. The words are spirit and life. If you have no life, you must be devoid of the word and the spirit. See, the church at Sardis had no life because, as we will see, they did not hold fast to the words of life, which the Spirit of God uses to impart life into that which is dead and to sustain life in that which is living. So if the church at Sardis or any other church, First Baptist Nixa even, wants to live, not just have programs and activities and people flowing in and out throughout the week. Live. Breathe. Enjoy. Life. If we want life, then that church must return to Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Has them in His hand. They must return to him who was sent from God, who utters the words of God, and who gives the Spirit of God without measure, John 3.34. They must say, as Simon Peter said, when all of the rest had departed from Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life 
In other words, it doesn't matter how hard things get and it doesn't matter how long you tarry and it doesn't matter how hot the tribulations become. Lord, to whom else shall we go? There is life in no one else but in him who has the seven spirits of God and who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Him who was sent from God, who speaks the words of God, and who gives the spirit of God without measure, the spirit who brings life. Dead churches are dead because they have departed from Christ and his word, and he has ceased to supply them with the spirit. I would like to approach this letter in much the same way that Tom Rainer approached the church that I told you about in the introduction. I want us to perform an autopsy on the church at Sardis. I want us to look for the factors that led to its demise. I want us to search for the cause or causes of death. We'll begin at the end of verse 1 with the heavenly coroner's pronouncement of death. I know your works. He says, I know you've got stuff going on, got classes, meeting throughout the building, services every Sunday, women's groups, men's groups, youth groups, children's groups. I I know your works. I know that you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead pronounces them, flatlined. The word translated reputation there is literally name. And the concept of one's name will be an important theme running throughout this letter. Just, just look down at the, these six verses with me. The church had a name of being alive, but was in fact dead, verse 1. Yet, verse 4 There were a few names in Sardis who had not soiled their garments and were worthy to walk with Christ in white. Verse 5, the one who conquers in the tribulation will never have his name blotted out of the book of life. But in fact, Jesus will confess his name before his Father and before the angels at the judgment. But reputation is not a bad translation in verse 1 because that's what's meant by name. So just as the city of Sardis had a reputation of being impenetrable and yet still fell to the Persians, so the church at Sardis had a reputation of being alive but was in reality dead. Just like so many churches that a generation or two generations ago boasted of a passionate preaching ministry and was effective in evangelism and discipleship and missions and baptized many and planted new churches, but over the years and over the decades has grown cold and stale and dry and dead. It has a name that it is alive because everybody remembers what once was, but once was is no longer and it is no longer alive, but is in fact dead. Vern Poitras reminds us that the essence of a church is not its programs, buildings, past achievements, reputation, institutional greatness, or formal doctrinal correctness. The essence of a church is its spiritual life. And that life comes only through fellowship with the living Christ. 
You've got to go to him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven angels in his right hand. But what contributed to this demise? What was the cause of death? Well, if we examine Jesus' words carefully, I believe we can identify three factors. Number one, we find that they had lost their conviction regarding the word of God. Jesus says in verses 2 and 3, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at which hour I will come against you. I want to key in on that first part of verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. So waking up and strengthening what remains and is about to die means remembering what you have received and heard, keeping it and repenting. Evidently then, this deadly slumber of the church at Sardis was caused by a neglect or a forgetting or a setting aside of what they had received and heard, which is a reference to the apostolic faith once for all delivered and once for all received and heard by the saints. They had just ceased to think that this was very important. They had ceased to think that this was authoritative. They had ceased to think that these are the words of life. And so they began to die. I want to compare this sorry, slumbering church at Sardis with another church in the Scriptures. I want to compare it with the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. A living, vibrant church in which the Spirit moved powerfully. In Acts chapter 2, Luke records that the Jerusalem church, listen to this, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42. And then in Acts chapter 6, Luke records that the apostles in Jerusalem were unwilling to give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables, and therefore they appointed deacons to administrate the daily distribution of bread for the express purpose, they say, so that they would be freed to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. In other words, in the church at Jerusalem, the living, vibrant, powerful, effective church at Jerusalem, the saints devoted themselves to receiving and hearing the apostolic word, and the apostles devoted themselves to ministering and teaching the apostolic word. At the very core of the living church in Jerusalem was a mutual devotion between the people and the pastors of teaching and feeding upon the words of life. And that is true of every living church. Without exception. For as Jesus told the disciples, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. My words are Spirit and they are life. See, the Word and the Spirit cannot be separated. 
And to neglect one is to abandon the other. And the result is spiritual suicide. As a church or as a Christian, you abandon your conviction, your devotion to this, you begin to die. Secondly, we find that the church at Sardis had stained their character. I get this from Jesus' words in verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The implication then is that the vast majority of the church in Sardis, right, all but a few names, have soiled their garments. Now this imagery of the white garments, it's going to be a recurrent theme in the book of Revelation. It will be picked up again in Revelation 7.14 where we learn that the robes which clothe the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, those robes symbolize their justification. John writes that they have been washed, they have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb, which is the language of atonement. It's the language of cleansing. It's the language of justification. And then again in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, we see that same group from Revelation 7, the redeemed of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, now pictured as the bride of Christ, attending the marriage supper of the Lamb, and again, they're clothed in white garments. John writes, they are clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So in Revelation 19, those white garments symbolize their sanctification, their righteous deeds, which flow out of their justification. Their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And so, back in Revelation 3-4, that all but a few names in Sardis had soiled their garments refers in the vast majority of the congregation to an absence of justification and a lack of sanctification. Their robes are not white. They're not washed white in the blood of the Lamb, and they're not shining in the splendor of righteousness and holiness. In short, they had a name that they were alive, that they were Christians, but their lives told a different story. In the eyes of Christ, they were unbelieving idolaters, church members. In the eyes of Jesus, they were unbelieving idolaters, tares sown among the wheat, sheep mixed in with, or goats rather, mixed in with the flock of sheep. Now, having read the sins of the other churches that afflicted, or the other, yeah, the other churches in Asia Minor, remember the, the recurrent sins of idolatry and immorality, they're eating food sacrificed to idols, they're engaging in fornication with temple prostitutes. It's not a stretch to imagine that the church at Sardis in the same region, in, in the same context, had stained themselves in much the same way. They're attending pagan feasts. They're eating at pagan temples. They're engaging in pagan immorality. Therefore, they did not walk with Christ in white, but rather stood before Him in filthy garments. Finally, 
the church had abandoned their confession. I get this by way of implication from verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That last phrase is a clear reference to a very famous verse, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending his disciples out, as he says, as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be thrown in prison, and they're going to put you to death. But, he will confess me before men, I will confess before my Father who's in heaven, and he who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So follow the logic here. In order for Jesus to confess us before his Father who is in heaven, we must confess him before men, right? Even, according to Matthew chapter 10, even in the midst of persecution and even under the threat of death. Jesus promises the church at Sardis that the one who conquers, he will confess before his Father. Therefore... For the church in Sardis to conquer and for Jesus to confess them before the Father, conquering must mean openly confessing Christ in the context of their hostile pagan environment. And that the vast majority of the church in Sardis were dead and not alive, were not conquering, leads us to believe that most of the church had abandoned their public confession of Jesus. Instead, just assimilating into the surrounding pagan culture and losing all distinction with the world around them. They weren't confessing Christ before men, and so he's telling them, I have no intention of confessing your name before the Father when it comes to the day of judgment. So the church at Sardis was dead. The autopsy report reveals that it died because they had lost their conviction. They neglected the apostolic word which they had received and heard. They stained their character. They wore filthy garments of idolatry and immorality. And they had abandoned their confession. They refused to speak concerning Christ or to live holy lives that would have distinguished them from the surrounding culture. But hear me. All was not lost for the church at Sardis. For in Christ there is hope even for the dead. The very fact that Jesus sent them a letter and commanded them to repent proves that there was still time to repent and that there was still hope of salvation. Several years back, I I read the words of another Lifeway guru by the name of Ed Stetzer who wrote that it is easier to give birth than to raise the dead. It's easier to give birth than to raise the dead. In that statement, Stetzer was, which which he's made a number of times in a number of different contexts, he was intending to encourage people to focus their energy and their resources in planting new churches rather than trying to revive old dying churches. 
And I get what he was saying. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And if you've ever been in a dead or dying church, you may tend to agree with him. But Jesus hadn't given up on the church at Sardis. Now, if they don't wake up, there will come a day when Jesus would arrive suddenly like a thief and judgment would fall as he says, I will come against you. Then and only then would it be too late. But that, that is for Jesus to decide, not us. Dead or dying churches are worth fighting for. Dead church members are worth fighting for. And though it may be easier for us to raise the dead, or to give birth rather than to raise the dead, it's just as easy for Jesus to call Lazarus out of the tomb as it was for him to call a small child to himself. He has no limit to his sovereign power. And so language of easier and harder makes no sense with the risen Christ. Jesus utters a word, the Spirit imparts life, and dead churches spring to life. It's called revival. And Jesus has done it before, and he can do it again any time that he pleases. And who's to say that's not what he was doing in the church at Sardis? Who's to say that when these words were read in the hearing of the congregation, that the Spirit did not fall and grant to them ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, such that they awoke from their slumber, they strengthened what, what, what remained and was about to die, they remembered the apostolic word, and they fell on their faces in spirit-wrought repentance. Who's to say that the threat of his imminent visitation and judgment did not strike terror into their hearts and awaken them from sleep? Who's to say that the promise of reward did not cause their hearts to spring to life with the result that the superior pleasures offered in Christ suddenly outweighed the fleeting pleasures of sin such that they washed their garments white in the blood of the Lamb? And who's to say that Jesus doesn't intend to do the very same thing in our midst this morning? Dead churches are simply congregations filled with dead members. Churches are people, not buildings, not institutions. So maybe you're here today having a name that you're alive, but you are in fact dead. You don't love the Word. You don't keep it. Treasure it. Your garments are stained with sin and immorality and greed and covetousness. You do not confess Christ before men in word and in deed. The people who know you best wouldn't even know that you're a believer. You're dead. Though you may be on a church roll and have a name that you're alive. To you this morning, I simply give the words of the risen Christ. The sovereign, powerful, 
life-imparting words of the risen Christ. And pray that the Spirit would grant you ears to hear what He says to the churches. So listen. Not just with these, but with this and this. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For he has not found your deeds complete in the sight of his God. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. For if you will not wake up, he will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour he comes against you. We pray the Spirit would cause those words to bring life to your soul. But if by the Spirit's power you hear, you live, you conquer, if you will awaken from the slumber of sin, if you will repent and wash your garments white in the blood of Christ, then I make to you these promises. You will walk before Him in white. You will have sweet fellowship with Christ in the joy of forgiven sin. No more sin, no more shame, no more hiding, no more guilt. You will walk with your Savior Now by faith, then by sight, having been justified by His blood and sanctified by His Spirit, you will be clean. And you will be eternally secure in His grace. Jesus will never blot your name from the book of life. Now, be careful here. And do not make This verse says something that it does not say. Read it carefully. It does not say that there are some whose names were in the book of life, but they fell asleep and their names were blotted out. It doesn't say that. Rather, this is a promise, a wonderful promise that those whose names are are written in the book of life. The evidence of which is that you are in a state of repentance and a state of faith and a state of desire and a state of pursuing Christ and persevering in faith. You have signs of life. That's the evidence that your names are written in the book of life. And we will find out in Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 that indeed they have been written in the book of life by the sovereign electing decree of God before foundations of the world and here you have a promise from the risen Christ that they will continue to be written in the book of life for all of eternity. Eternal security for those who are alive in Christ. And finally, you will be acknowledged by Jesus in the day of judgment. When that day comes and the books are opened, As Paul says, we're called to give an account for all of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. The sins are red. The guilt is 
there. What has been done in secret is shouted from the rooftops. What has been done in the dark is brought out into the light. You will not stand alone. You will have an advocate before the Father. He will be your friend at the day of judgment. And he will plead his atoning death for your sins. And he will testify to your faith, imperfect though it may be. And he will claim you as his own. And those will be the sweetest, most glorious words that ever fell upon your ears when Christ stands to confess your name before his Father and before the holy angels. He is with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So may God grant to each and every one of you ears to hear this morning. That the cry of your heart may echo the words of the Apostle Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life.